They'll take out your study guides, and uh, those were given to you when you came in. Hopefully, they'll be helpful to you. And I am going to do something I've never done before. I'm going to preach sitting down because this is the deal I made with my wife to get permission to preach today. Let me explain. Two weeks ago, I stood on the stage after spending more time on a message preparation than I've ever spent in my life. Over 50 hours of my time went into that sermon two weeks ago. And uh, the media team probably put another 100 hours or more of their time into that one message. If you weren't here two weeks ago, we kicked off this um, series called The Perfect Story with this 50-plus minute message that I affectionately refer to as the mega message. That's what I call it. Now it's the mega message. And man, I was so happy that day, so strong, so confident. I was so proud of myself and my team. And I was just real thrilled with what God had done with that message that day and all the work we had put into it. And little did I know uh, that when I walked off the stage after preaching that mega message for the fourth time, two weeks ago, that there was a war being waged within me, a microscopic enemy was laying siege. And sometime overnight, uh, Sunday night, uh, the walls were breached and the city fell. (laughs) And I woke up Monday morning, my body was under new management. And I know it's not uncommon for y'all to hear me say, y'all bear with me, I've been a little sick, a little sore throat, scratchiness, whatever. This it was not that. I don't, I don't want to get too far into the, the weeds of it. It's a kind of a scary two weeks, to be honest. And uh, for all intents and purposes, I probably shouldn't be up here. I'm still extremely dizzy. I feel a little bit like I'm watching myself do this right now. <laughs> It's a really weird feeling. Uh, And, uh, you know, for most of the last two weeks, I've been running fevers in 103, 104, sleeping 22 hours a day. It's really, really out of it. Um, And a lot of other stuff that I I will spare the details on. But just a weird couple of weeks. I would occasionally wake up. This one time I woke up and, and Giovanna and the kids were like standing over me and she had her hand, arms around them like she, they were looking down at a body. And I was like, am I, am I dead? Am I, you know, and I, I wasn't thankfully, but you know, it's just like life goes on. Like I kept hearing their voices in the house, like they were just living their lives for two weeks without their dad, their husband, you know, they're just going on about their business. I love hearing their voices. It also made me really sad. One time I heard a man's voice in the house. I was like, well, (laughs) she moved on. Can't say that I blame her. Some Oregon Trail stuff happened in our house this week, man. It was savage business. Um, Had to miss the Timber Grove soft open last week, which just about set me into a depression tailspin, man. I really wanted to be there. Uh, It was uh, near to my heart, you know. How many of y'all were there, by the way, last week? I love it. So few hands go up. I, I really do. You know why? Because I know for a fact that it was packed over there. And if y'all weren't there, who were those people? 
new people. <laughs> I love it. So uh, it was a beautiful event last weekend. I couldn't make it. Anyway, uh, the, the long story short is that Giovanna said on day two of this whole event, she told my doctor it was bacterial. He said, no, it's viral. And you just got to wait it out. When it's a virus, you just wait it out. What are you going to do? You just wait it out. And so we waited it out for 10 days after that. And then he said, come back in. It's all getting worse. You know, I could barely function. Giovanna's forcing bread down my throat just so I don't die on her watch, you know. And uh, so he's run some more tests. It's bacterial. <laughs> Giovanna was right the whole time, which she loved. And uh, so moral of the story, two things. First, uh, when Giovanna says something to you, you better listen. That's been my life lesson for 20 years of marriage. Now, she knows everything, and she's almost always right. Man, hate that about her. And uh, the other thing is, man, uh, life comes at you fast. What a difference two weeks makes. Because two weeks ago on this stage, I was strong, confident, self-assured. It's like that day you show up at work and you're crushing it. You ever have that day? That was, that was two weeks ago. That is not today for me. It's the opposite of that today. I don't know how much time I spent on today's message. It wasn't 50 hours or anything close. I've never been as unprepared to preach as I am today. I'm totally serious. I'm just being vulnerable. Cards on the table. Y'all glad you came? Y'all are like, man. <laughs> it's true. I can barely stand up. I look at a book and it moves. So this is where we are now. And, uh, you know, that's, that's, uh, that's my... It's my reality today. So um, I just kind of wanted to, to start there and uh, let you know a little bit about what was going on and, and really just say I'm just so grateful to be here, thankful to be sharing this space with y'all, hearing your voices. The band was awesome today, awesome. I was trying to get a nap in my office. I just kept thumping my head with that bass. It's just like, it's good. It's good. I didn't need that nap anyway. I've been sleeping 22 hours a day for two weeks. So, y'all, uh, get your study guides ready. We're going to dig into today's question, um, which is part three of our series, The Perfect Story. We're talking about whether the Bible can be trusted. Today's question is, uh, is the Bible intolerant or inclusive? Is the Bible intolerant or inclusive? The reason that we're asking this particular question, if you're wondering why this question matters, is because uh, the words like tolerance and inclusion have, over the last 30 years, become very important passwords in our culture. And so if you're younger than me, especially, you know you need to know these words, say these words, abide by these words. They are cultural passwords to be accepted into certain circles, especially in education. You need to know and respect and toe the line when it comes to words like tolerance and inclusion. And words like tolerance and inclusion together with words like um, 
equality, diversity, and maybe acceptance or belonging. They form sort of the five pillars of this cultural safe space that we're living in now for the past few decades. Some of y'all may not even be aware of anything I'm saying, but I'm saying if you look around, you'll see these words everywhere all of a sudden. They're everywhere. You'll hear them everywhere, like cultural passwords, right? And um, for young people, they're very important if you want to get anywhere, especially in the world of education. So uh, I want to explore that a little bit. I think those five words are, are good words, man. I hate being put in a position where I feel like I'm going to be disparaging something like inclusion or tolerance. Those are good ideas. Those are virtues. But my concern with the use of these words, especially recently, is that they are not being used in virtuous ways. I think instead they have become vices employed by the leaders of the tolerance patrol in our culture uh, to form just another purity test to make you prove yourself, to prove that you're really tolerant enough. And if you have the gall to question the value of what they call tolerance or the source of it or the reason we have to be that way or who gets to decide tolerant of what? Like who gets to decide what we're supposed to be tolerant of and why? Like if you ask those questions, you will be a threat and you will be deemed eventually intolerable, <laughs> which is ironic. And they don't see the irony, usually it's lost on them, the irony that they have become exactly that which they set out to destroy, right? The old religious and whatever institutions that were so, you know, like insider, outsider, so exclusive and, and all these purity tests and all that stuff they used to criticize religion for. Well, they're that now. Under the banner of tolerance, right? And uh, I think if you want to know what I, I mean, you, you have to look no further than recent headlines. Uh, like what happened to Christian Chicken this week, man. Did y'all see that? Y'all know what I mean, Christian Chicken. I don't like using their real name. It's a good company, and I don't like disparaging them or whatever. Christian Chicken, y'all with me? Yes. Now, let me just first say... I don't really have a dog in this hunt. I'm not that preacher that's all like pro-Christian chicken. I've been preaching the gospel of raising canes for years. <laughs> Just to be honest with you. However, I never in a hundred years thought Christian chicken would fold to the pressure of the tolerance patrol. I thought that's how they were making their money. Well, there was some kind of a breaking point this week. I don't know. I was in a, a fever dream most of the time. But um, I came to uh, enough to notice that this had happened, you know, for months. Like, they had been coming after uh, Christian Chicken for supporting with their charity dollars, supporting some vile, hate-mongering organization. I never really did enough homework to know what organization they were talking about. I just didn't, I don't care enough about those things, those, um, you know, triggered kind of stuff like in the culture. 
I just don't care enough to, to pay attention. So I didn't know which vile, dark organization that Christian Chicken had been supporting all this time. And then it all hits the fan that Christian Chicken agrees not to support that vile, dark, evil organization anymore. And turns out it's the Salvation Army. The Salvation Army is the enemy of the people. You know, the Salvation Army. Santa Claus ringing a bell with a red bucket. Salvation Army. Salvation Army, let me just just let you know, Salvation Army serves 30 million Americans a year. That's almost a tenth of our population that gets assistance from Salvation Army. 20 20 plus million Americans sleep in Salvation Army shelters every year. Salvation Army saved lives. They came to our rescue in Hurricane Harvey. They're everywhere. They're ubiquitous. That's not even to mention their work around the world in 130 countries where they have like 700 shelters set up around the world. They're starting hospitals for women, women's and infants' hospitals in places that no other organization will even venture into to start a hospital. Salvation Army's there operating hospitals, battered women's shelters, old folks' homes, orphanages, hundreds of them around the world. Is this really the face of the enemy? Is this really the dark and vile and evil corporation that Christian Chicken should be shut down for supporting? Okay. I dug in a little bit to figure out what it was about the Salvation Army that makes it so intolerable. And you know me, I have a little trouble staying out of uh, conflict on Twitter. All right, so uh, this, is, this is on me. All right, I got into some of this. But I had the audacity to say, hey, what is it that makes Salvation Army so bad? And I kept hearing the same story. If I asked enough questions, the same story was thrown out like a gauntlet to stop the conversation. I looked at other threads. It was happening too. Same story. Shut it down with the same story. And the story was about a woman named Jennifer Gale. A tragic story. Her life was a tragedy, no doubt. Like, and I honor that. Like, it's an awful story. But the story being told to shut down every inquisitive conversation about Salvation Army is that one time... In the 90s, the Salvation Army made a woman freeze to death outside their shelter in Austin, Texas, because she's trans. The Salvation Army let a trans woman freeze to death outside their shelter in Austin, Texas. That sounded awful. And of course, every time they dropped that gauntlet, like, conversation over, okay, that's bad. You're right, that's bad. But I don't know. I smelled something Jussie. I wasn't buying it. Something wasn't adding up. Something about freezing to death in Austin. (laughs) You know? It's got to be real cold to freeze to death. I mean, and I've been to Austin a lot of times. I've never gotten close to that cold. Um, 
again, not to make light of what happened to Miss Gail. But her death, though tragic, had nothing to do with the Salvation Army, nothing to do with the shelter. It's been long debunked as a myth. Since the 90s, it's been debunked. But now, it's been said so many times by so many people that it doesn't matter whether it actually happened or not. Now, it's baked in to the cultural conversation. And it cannot be questioned. The Salvation Army let a trans woman die outside their shelter because she's trans. It never happened, but it's true. At least according to the narrative, right? So, I want to be very clear that I am well aware we need to have some serious conversations about equal rights in America, equal opportunities for all in America. I think that's the vision the founding fathers set out, and I think we should pursue it. We need to have even more serious conversations in the church about such things. What I'm saying is that we cannot have such conversations in a culture in which not even the Salvation Army has done enough good. We cannot have such conversations in a culture in which the Salvation Army is intolerable. It's impossible to go forward from there. I think what's happening, my hunch, is that what's really bothering people about stuff like Salvation Army and Fellowship of Christian Athletes and all this other stuff is that they're really more churches than anything else. So the Salvation Army especially is a church. It is. It's a church, first and foremost. If it wasn't a church, I think they would leave them alone, or they at least would have the legal right to make them do what they want. Because they're a church, they abide by the Bible. Again, back to the founding fathers, separation of church and state. You know what I mean? But because they're a church, they're outside the control of the leaders of the tolerance patrol. All right? So... What bothers them is that the Salvation Army is a church responding to a higher authority, refusing to conform to changing cultural norms. And eventually, like, I didn't say this at the other services. This is a special add-on material. But I think what's going to happen is that they're just going to start coming for the tax uh, statuses of these organizations, these churches that abide by Scripture and refuse to conform to changing cultural norms. They'll just start taking away the tax benefits, you know, the nonprofit status, and we'll start having to pay taxes, including the story, because that includes us, mm, you know, uh, which is fine. Jesus said, render unto Caesar, right? We'll just keep renting places. How about that? <laughs> we just won't be owning any property for a while. That's cool. Let's keep renting. Y'all want to rent? All right, rent for Jesus. All right, so Whatever. <laughs> Because what they want from churches, more than anything else, is conformity. They'll let us exist as long as we conform to their norms, their standards of tolerance. Okay? So the biggest, uh, I think the clearest example of this, that's just a beautiful thing to behold when you see it because it's so obvious what's happening, 
is uh, when uh, uh, ed educational institutions, universities, will host yearly uh, religious uh, diversity or religious tolerance week. And the, the universities are always so proud to host uh, religious tolerance weeks um, because it shows how willing they are to put up with all these different groups of stupid people. And so you've got your Christians and your Jews and your other Christians and your, and your Baha'i people and your, and your Buddhists and your Muslims and your other Christians and your other Christians and all these other different groups. And, and they're all the same. On this campus, they're all the same. No one has any superior ideas to the other they're all basically teaching the same peace and love and stuff, and we let them do it here because we're tolerant. And as long as they're tolerant, we're tolerant of them. And so everyone's the same. You're the same as you. You're the same as you. You're the same as you. And whatever exclusive claims your religion happens to make, whatever absolutist claims your religion, you have to check those at the door and just take the stuff we have in common and play along, right? And it's so demeaning to every one of those groups. So demeaning to say, check your cherished beliefs at the door in the name of tolerance so you can all be the same. I'll be a good little religious group, a good little religious group, a good little religious group, a good little religious group. And this Christian group over here has 1,500 students. It's bursting at the seams. It's just taking the campus by storm. And, and you know, over here you've got the Baha'i nudist forest coven with their three girls and a cat. And they get the same size table, the same size booth, the same representation because we're all the same. Until, is what I've noticed, we're all the same until we all start inviting people to stuff. And this is where the true colors come out. Because the minute the Christian group starts inviting people to their next worship service, proselytizing, stop it. They shut it down. But the minute the Baha'i nudist forest girls have a yoga night in the forest and they're inviting everybody, it's like, oh, let's go have fun in the forest, y'all. Just a fun night in the forest. Naked yoga. Look, that's worship too. What's the difference? At the end of the day, a lot of this is about bringing Christianity down to the level of, in their view, all the other religions. So that Christian kids stop talking about what and thinking about what makes the Christian story unique, what makes the Christian scripture different, what sets our claims apart. Because there's so much that distinguishes every religion from each other. And the minute they can get Christian kids to stop thinking about that stuff, talking about that stuff, sharing the stuff that makes Christianity so special, the stuff that makes the Bible so real, man, they have completely neutered the Christian faith, taking it away all of its power, all of its witness. And then in the next generation, the minds of, uh, of young Americans are squarely in the hands of the tolerance patrol. And uh, remember, in the world of Tolerance Incorporated, not even the Salvation Army does enough good. And so where will you stand in that world? I don't want to live in that world. It's a graceless world. Even when you buy into it, 
you're exhausted because you're never tolerant enough. Somebody's always more tolerant than you. You're never inclusive enough. Somebody's always including somebody you failed to include so far. It's a never-ending game. Like the Old Testament sacrificial system. Got to give more. Got to give more. Got to give more. And a lot of times we don't even see it. Now, is the Bible intolerant or inclusive? I left this part for the last, you know, 10 minutes of the sermon because this isn't hard. This is a very easy question to answer. The Bible is intolerant of all sin and tolerant of all sinners equally. And it always has been the case. This is not some kind of, you know, new twist on the Bible. Even in the Old Testament, that's been the message. The Bible is intolerant of all sin and tolerant of all sinners. Y'all, this idea goes so far back. <clears throat> all the way back to the older parts of the Old Testament. I know that there are, 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 are many people who have been led to believe that the Bible is intolerant because you've been exposed to too many intolerant people who use the Bible against you. And I'm sorry. I feel like I'm apologizing for Christians who are intolerant all the time. Not intolerant of sin, intolerant of sinners, people. And, and I just want you to know that if that's where you're, you're at, like Christians know these people exist. We're ashamed of them too. But in some ways, trying to shut them up makes it worse. In some ways, they're family, so we've got to put up with them. And this is a good sort of primer for Thanksgiving. Y'all are going home for Thanksgiving soon, right? You've all got that uncle who loves that politician that you love to hate. Doesn't do any good to try to stop him from talking. So what do you do? You double down on the trip to fan. Have a little more wine. Grit your teeth to get through it because he's family. That's how we feel about some of these people that are out there just hurting folks, you know? And I'm sorry that they're out there doing that, but, but that doesn't change the source material. You, if you judge the source material based on the messenger, that's, that's a problem. It's an argument ad hominem. It's a, it's a fallacy as old as fallacies themselves. So you got to go to the source material Yourself, it's worth your time. It's worth your time to discover the treasures of the Bible for yourself. All right. So I, I encourage you to do that. Um, now, what I think you'll find when you discover the Bible for yourself is what I found as a hard-hearted skeptic as I was. The Bible's not one book that's full of judgment and rules. It's a library, a library written by over 40 different people over a thousand years time in three different languages on three different continents, Africa, Asia, Europe. It's a beautiful way to begin a movement, a beautiful way to write a holy book. It represents so much of the world as we know it. And you'll find yourself asking, is this the book they've always said was so hateful, so shameful, so intolerant? Now, if you start at the very beginning in your search, in your quest, start at the beginning in the book of Genesis, which covers events uh, starting in Genesis 12, really. For me, Genesis 1 through 11, uh, creation through the Tower of Babel, it's all kind of the preamble to what really happens throughout the rest of the Bible. And Genesis 
12 through 18 are the stories of God and Abraham. That's where it's all setting the table. God's promises to Abraham set the table for the rest of the narrative. And look at Genesis 17, God's vision. Check this out. This is an, keep in mind, these are the Jewish scriptures. And look what God promises Abraham. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless, and then I will make my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Abram fell face down, and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of one nation. Oh, nope, uh-uh. You will be the father of the Hebrew nation. Ah, oh, that's not it either, is it? You will be the father of many nations. This is the promise of God in antiquity to Abram, the father of the Jewish people in the Jewish scriptures, saying, I'm going to make you the father of more than just the Jewish state, more than just the Hebrew people. In antiquity, God promised Abram, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. God's vision was and has been and still is all along it's been one of inclusion of all of his people. He doesn't just want a few chosen ones. He wants all of his people to know him, to love him, to be in relationship with him. And this isn't just an isolated case in Genesis either. It continues throughout the Old Testament. Like in the prophet Micah, for example. Micah prophesied during a time of high holy temple worship where it was all about sacrifices and how much you can do to prove your love to God and give a calf, give a bird, give a what da 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 One thing after another is never enough. Who gave more this week? I did. Yay! And that was it. And then Micah, the prophet, speaks into that culture, that Jewish uh, temple worship culture. He says, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression? Is that what you want, God? I'll, I'll do it, God. If that, if that, my firstborn, if that's what you want. The fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. And then Prophet Micah speaks, he has shown you, O mortal, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. You don't have to prescribe to the right religious practices. You don't have to be a Jew is what God is saying here. You don't have to have ever stepped foot in the temple to know God. God says, if you want to know me, come take a walk with me. How beautiful is that? No sacrifices, no religion, no pomp and circumstance, no ritual. Just come take a walk with me. What kind of a God does that? One who is ultimately inclusive, ultimately tolerant of all of us equally. And he always has been. And of course, this extends in the New Testament. Y'all know this about Jesus already. For God so loved the who? The world, not the Christians, not the church, not the good ones. The world, the whole world, and that's why Jesus came. And what many people don't know is that this idea radically extends throughout the rest of the New Testament, even in the writings of someone like Paul, who is often accused of being rigid and patriarchal and ex exclusive and hateful and all this other stuff that I've heard about. Paul, he writes to his buddy Timothy this. This is about to blow your minds. Are you ready? Are you ready? We're almost done. Are you ready? 
All right. I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority. We may live in peace and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Listen to this. This is good. Get ready. And pleases God our Savior. Are you ready? Who wants all people to be saved. God wants no one to burn. God wants no one to be distant from him. God wants no one excluded, no one cut apart. This doesn't mean that suddenly the story is a universalist church because the point isn't that he makes everyone get saved. The point is that he offers it to everyone the same. Inclusive of all people, tolerant of all sinners, the same. He wants all people to be saved, for there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for who? All people. Do you know how hard it is to sit down and say that? (laughs) All people. It's what it's always been. Not some. Not us. Not churchy folks. All people is who God wants. And he always has. And there's nothing else in the world like this that says anything close to this. This is the gospel. I know there's people going, yeah, well, that's fine. But all the Christians I know, all they ever talk about is sin, my sin especially. They like to throw my sin in my face. Okay, let's talk about it. I know we can beat that drum a little heavy sometimes. I get it. What you have to know is from a gospel perspective, having your sin put in your face is not an act of shame. It is not an act of hate. It's not to keep you down. Someone who puts your sin in your face from a gospel perspective loves you more than anyone else. Because sometimes someone who stands in front of you and says, you're just fine the way you are. I hope you never change. is the most hateful thing they can say. Because we all need to change. We're all sinners. Of course we got work to do. And to have your sin in your face is nothing more, truly nothing more than a reminder of the vast riches of the grace of God and the lengths to which Jesus went to pay your cost and mine and yours and yours and yours and yours and yours and all of us for all time when he went to the cross. There's a couple of passages that illustrate this that I'll just throw on the screen at the same time from Romans and 1 Peter Especially the first Peter 2, he says he carried in his own body on the cross the sins we committed. He did this so that we might live in righteousness, having nothing to do with sin. By his wounds, you were healed. This is a reminder of the core message of the Bible. This is the gospel. And there is nothing in the world, in the history of world religions or anywhere else that's ever been anything close to the gospel. The gospel that says to be loved, accepted, received, forgiven, and to be with this God who loves you forever. All you have to do is nothing. My God. Nothing? I don't even have to turn in my play your part 2020 card. You don't to be loved by God. You do to be loved by Eric. (laughs) That's just because God is better than me. You might be sitting here thinking, I'm a bad person. 
Nobody knows what I've done or the thoughts I've had. I'm telling you, you could be a hundred times worse than you are. And the offer wouldn't change. I don't know what to do with a grace like that. You might be thinking, I've screwed my life up. I've made a mess of things. I'm telling you, you could screw it up a thousand times worse. And God's offer would not change. I'm telling you, I could preach... 50 more mega messages or 50 more whatever this has been or I could never get up and preach another sermon the rest of my life and God would be just as proud of me oh my God it's the only it's the only thing I've ever known like it and it's not based in your performance at all you don't have to earn it All there is to do is to receive it. It's already done. It's done. It is finished. It is done. And it is yours if you want it. That's the gospel. Praise the Lord. I pray that if your heart's been teetering on the fence, you don't want to be like those Christians you've known. You don't want to be a Republican. Whatever. we got people of all stripes here. That's fine. Don't do it. Don't change your political party. Whatever. That's okay. Don't let any of that other external stuff stand in your way. Just This is you and God. Go to the source. This book is a game changer. When you receive it, when you access it, for yourself and you shut out all those outside voices you say yes would you pray with me Jesus Jesus there's nobody like you there's no other name like yours no gospel like yours. There's no offer we've ever received that comes anywhere close to the one you have proposed. And yet we are afraid to say yes to it. (laughs) The best offer we'll ever receive terrifies us. I pray, Lord, I pray, I pray for people who are afraid, broken, held back by toxic thoughts. God, I pray that we would just breathe in your spirit right now. Breathe in your forgiveness. Breathe in your mercy, God. Mercy. Mercy, mercy, mercy. Lord, how could a love shine so bright, shine through every darkness, even mine, without asking anything in return? Father, Father, 
Help us deceive, and when we've lost our way a thousand times, I am a child of God. A child of God. My identity lies in you and nothing less. Lord, give us courage just to say yes in this moment to you. To build our life around you and no one else. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.